the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome back to another episode of Planning Exchange. I'm Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Hi, Pete. Hello, Jess. Going to learn a lot today, I think. Oh, yeah. So today is our first episode back after a very brief hiatus as I just had a baby, Um, baby Nina, who's now four months old. So gosh, that still sounds very weird to say. (laughs) So if there's any squeaks and squawks in this episode, um, that is why. (laughs) Now, today we are talking with Jared McHugh from World Trail, one of the largest and most experienced uh, mountain bike trail companies in the world. Welcome, Jared. Thanks, Jess. Now, Jared, I understand that World Trail has created over 300 kilometres of purpose-built recreation trails in Australia and has designed and constructed every World Cup, World Championship, Olympic and Enduro World Series courses for mountain biking in Australia. That's pretty incredible. So what else can you tell us about World Trail and also about you and your background? Yeah, I can tell you a lot. Um, I've been doing this for over 15 years now. Um, and I guess I guess it was born out of a love for mountain biking, which I think I, I did my first race as an 18-year-old in about 1992. So my connection to the sport goes back a lot further than my work in it. And, and if, if you had have asked... 18 year old me what I'd be doing as a you know adult in his 40s I would have never suspected that I'd be doing what I'm doing now <laughs> you know it didn't exist back then as an option for a career we kind of have made it up as we went um, the company's the company's been going since about 2007 in its current guise but the two directors uh, and owners had sort of worked on previous things before that including sort of some some mountain bike filmmaking stuff. Um, one of the directors, you know, he, he kind of goes back a lot further in the mountain bike design and construction world. You know, he, he sort of um, was doing this stuff in the late 90s and even ended up working for the, the UCI, which is sort of the world governing body for cycling um, as the chief course designer for six years. So, you know, he's kind of our, our figurehead and our brand in some ways. Um, he's very well known in the mountain biking world. But yeah, I, I actually, um, in around 2003 or 2004, I was working for the Victorian state government in what was then the Department of Sustainability and Environment. They had a couple of name changes since then. Um, and I was managing a project to design and build a mountain bike trail network in the Otways at a town called Forest. Um, and it was really born out of the government's desire to try to drive some economic sort of revitalization into that region as at the same time they were phasing out timber harvesting in the Otways. So I kind of was new to the department. Someone said, oh, do you know anything about mountain biking? And it just so happened I did. And I'd, I'd been the president of the mountain bike club and so on and so forth. So I got handed this project to develop a trail network of forest. And um, one of the first things I did was go looking for companies that could help me design the trail network and I realized that there really weren't many <laughs> um, you know I was kind of talking to all these these industry people in the mountain bike industry and, and seeing you know saying who can do this stuff 
And really there was sort of only the one name, which was, was this Glenn Jacobs. Um, he kept popping up again and again. So in the end, I hired those guys. Um, they weren't called World Trail, they're not called Mud Cow Visions Australia. And we kind of got to know each other. And I think over a drink or something one night, I jokingly said, oh, you guys need someone like me to come and work for you. You know, someone who could talk the talk, you know, kind of fit into that government world. Um, I think it was about three years later, I, I rang them or they rang me. I think I'd had enough of working in the public service and lo and behold, that was 2007. I became a full-time employee. I've been there ever since. That's a pretty incredible story and um, what a way to score yourself a job. <laughs> um, I've got to say, I have actually um, been on the forest track a couple, a couple of times now. Um, I've never actually really been mountain bike riding except for, you know, the amateur stuff you do when you're a child. And yeah. I went there a couple of years ago with, um, with my husband and we got really into it after that. Um, <laughs> it was really, really good fun. And um, we went searching, I think, after that time for a couple of different tracks. And um, we were actually meant to go to the Mount Buller one, which I understand World Trails also were behind. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't, that sort of didn't work out because of you know, the last couple of years have been a bit of a write-off now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, look, really looking forward to getting back into it. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited to be talking to the person that designed the forest one because it was just so much fun. Yeah, oh, it's really interesting because there's actually, um, I, think, I think they've just been awarded two or $3 million to do a big refurb and revitalization of the trails at Forest. So, you know, it's, I'm not involved in that, but it's really interesting to see, you know, 15 years later or something, you know, that, that they're, it's still a going concern, I suppose, and that they want to do more to, to keep it, you know, current and popular and interesting for people. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Jared, can we talk about uh, the transformation of installing mountain bike trails? Um, an off-sided example is Derby. Is it Derby or Derby in yeah. northeast Tassie? Um, I understand that was a, a town like almost on life support, a tiny little place. And then it was just, uh, a mountain, mountain bike trail went in and now it is uh, a mecca around the world for mountain bike riders and a huge tourism uh, explosion there. Can you talk a bit about your involvement there and, um, you know, also the flow on effects of the mountain bike trail? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Um, it, it's Derby. Um, people often do call it Derby, but Derby is how it's known to the locals. Um, we, we got, I guess we were contacted by, by Dorset Council, um, which is the local council and sort of asked to, to provide some advice and input to a strategy that was sort of being developed. And at the time, I think they were calling it the Northeast Tasmania mountain bike trail strategy. And what they really wanted to do was kind of put small trail networks in a range of different locations in the Northeast of Tassie. You know, so they had like seven or eight different locations that they were considering. We came, we were asked to sort of, almost peer review this this strategy that had been put together and 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 come and look at the different locations and and what we found you know kind of didn't really make sense to us as as designers and builders of trails you know it all the sites that they'd found had some good attributes and some good values and and you could certainly have some some good trails at those locations but the problem that we saw was you weren't putting in enough volume of trails at any of these locations to really 
make it an attractive proposition for people to travel. What, what do you mean, sorry, volume of trails? As in the, the length of, of trails, you know. So one, one of the things we often talk about is having more trails than you can easily ride in a day. You know, essentially it forces you to stay overnight or come back and, and repeat, you know, repeat visit to places. So they were talking about, you know, 15 kilometre trail network here and 15 kilometre trail network there. And so when we looked at all these sites, we went there, you know, we're kind of grappling with, you know, how best to, to you know, provide our advice and, and try to give them something that we thought would actually be an incentive for people to travel there, you know, especially for people coming across from mainland Australia. And they took us to this little town called Derby and, you know, you could stand in the main street and have a game of cricket. <laughs> there was just nothing going on. There's two pubs in town, but they were pretty much just operating when they felt like it. A bunch of cafes again that were closed more often they're open you know shutters on on windows and doors and of houses and things so the town you know it, it had been a um a tin mining town you know 100 years ago or more and that was its primary industry you know and it had been a bustling town way back then but in recent times it had kind of just you know it was definitely declining people were moving away um but the main thing we saw as we went into the town is, well, you've actually got the framework here for businesses to move in and set up. And, and the best thing and the most important thing is mountain bike trail designers is you have this amazing forest and, and topography and, you know, rivers and things all coming right down into the centre of town. Um, you know, you could, you could basically walk from a cafe to the trailhead and into the trails within, you know, 300, 400 metres. So we kind of said to them, this is, this is the one, this is where you need to do it. You know, forget about seven different locations, put all your eggs in this basket and, and go all in on Derby, you know, and, and this, is, this is a better model. You know, we, we always talk about the sort of um, like the ski resort approach, the ski in, ski out. You know, you go to a ski resort, you park your car and you don't use it while you're there. And that's kind of the mentality that we've always sort of, you know, tried to talk about with mountain bike destinations. You know, once you get there, you don't want to have to drive your car. You want to be able to ride everywhere, you know, ride to the cafe, get your brekkie, go straight out onto the trails, you know, come back, go back to your accommodation, you know, have a rest and go back out again, all without having to get in the car. And we saw that at Derby, you know, and we saw all the potential that could be there. Sounds like I need to put Derby on my uh, list of places to visit now, I think, Jared. <laughs> oh, look, it, it's amazing. It's come... And the town has changed so much, you know, it was, I think it was about 2013 or 14 when we first started doing stuff there, you know, and since then they've basically upgraded the water supply. Like they didn't have potable water when we, oh, wow. uh, you know, they now have a mobile phone tower in town. Um, so there's real changes that have come about because of this to, mm. you know, the, the real estate market has gone nuts. Um, in fact, just two weeks ago, a block on the main street, a big block, I'll add, I think it was two and a half thousand square metres, sold for $1.5 million oh, wow. to a, a company who'll be setting up a brewery there. So, you know, it, you know, and look, that probably comes with some, some um, disadvantages too, especially for locals. But, you know, the, the people that have lived there are now able to sell their houses, you know, whereas go back, six seven years you'd put a house on the market in derby no one would buy it yeah and, and jared the young people there's a reason to stay there and a reason for young people to go there and the entrepreneurs starting all this new employment yeah you know, people are moving there i mean there's there's a number of businesses in town 
uh, you know, I can think of one family that I met, uh, a builder who went there in the early days, liked what he saw. He was a mountain biker. So he decided to buy a property and, and renovate it and, you know, set it up as an accommodation. Well, he moved his whole family there from Sydney. Um, and then when that challenge was finished, he decided to open a bike shop. So, you know, there's, there's so many cool stories about families who are actually moving there and going, you know, this is what we want. This is the change we were looking for in our lives. And, you know, there's also, there's, there's, there's young, young kids, you know, who sort of had grown up in that region who just embraced the sport and found their, you know, their kind of identity through it. Um, you know, so it's provided opportunities for people that would never have probably had any exposure to that in the past. Um, and Jared, another question I had, just going back to that point you made before about the importance of having um, some some more substantial tracks, so, you know, like 15, 20K tracks and those sorts of things. What's the, um, I guess, is it really important to also have a range of different tracks for different abilities? So catering for the beginners, but also the advanced bikers as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um and again, I kind of I think the ski resorts kind of figured that out a long time ago. You know that um, you need to you need to cater to all the different ability levels, but you also need to cater to all the different styles. There's a lot of different kind of genres or niches within mountain biking now too. Um, but for us, it, it's funny. You know, um, we've always sort of understood that we need in order to grow this sport we need to keep bringing people into the sport. And that means families and beginners and novices that, you know, have perhaps never, never even thought of themselves as mountain bikers. You know, they might just be people who are on a holiday and they just happen to go there and see, oh, I can hire a bike and go for a ride. Well, we want those people to have the most amazing experience on our trails so that they then, you know, something, a switch is flicked in their brain and they see themselves as a person who could actually become a mountain biker. So it's really important that those trails are attractive and enjoyable, but also at the same time, giving people enough of a taste of what the sport's about. They're not bland and, and boring. And do you have to be super fish? No, you don't. I mean, perhaps in the past you did, but the way, you know, the way we're designing trails now, you know, beginner trails generally, you know, we, we try not to put huge, big, steep climbs in them, for example. So it's certainly changed a lot in that regard. You know, I can think back to being being much younger and, you know, taking people out for rides and, you know, them ending up in tears or <laughs> with, you know, bleeding knees and elbows and things, you know, that that's it's sort of not like that anymore. You know, like this is this is the sport moving into the mainstream and the trails are designed to facilitate that. So you know, certainly there are there are trials that you need more fitness for, but a lot of them, it's just about matching your abilities to the trial. Yeah. I was just going to ask as well, um, how have things like e-bikes and um, new technologies such as, um, you know, even just better quality mountain bikes, how has that changed the access to mountain biking for a lot of people? Yeah, the e-bikes is really fascinating um, because I, I think you know, in the early days, there was a lot of fear about e-bikes, you know, especially from the land managers and, you know, the park rangers and so on. And I think that was more that they equate them with motorbikes, but they're very different and they don't have a throttle, for example. So it's not like a motorbike where you, you know, you can spin your back wheel. Essentially, they don't really give you any, any capabilities beyond a really fit mountain biker. You know, their bikes still ride the same way. What they do do though is, 
they give people who you know might not be fit enough or might be might feel they're getting too old or you know they've had an injury or something they give those people the ability to get on their bike and get into the trails and ride you know long distances um and, and some more serious trails i suppose you know they kind of open up the market for more people to go mountain biking so we've we've always kind of thought e-bikes are a good thing um you know and even even i know you know I've, I've gone out for rides with with people in their 60s and 70s who've been on e-bikes and can keep up with you know the younger guys who aren't on e-bikes so it really kind of levels the playing field um which is which is fantastic from where we come from yeah that's fantastic i'm assuming as well though um you know over the next couple of years e-bikes will only become more and more accessible to a lot of people because i think at the moment um the electric mountain bikes are fairly expensive <laughs> oh, absolutely yeah they're definitely they're definitely expensive um that doesn't seem to stop a lot of people so there's still there's still only a small percentage of you know trail users but it's definitely i think one of the biggest segments in mountain bike sales at the moment is in the e-bike stuff so i'm sure they'll get more affordable and they'll just keep improving and you know becoming more commonplace uh, it's great that they're making uh, the sport more accessible jared when you're dealing with dorset uh council and and just other councils generally how can they how, what do they like to deal with um presumably they're very happy to have you involved and how can they help your job how can they make it easier for you in essence yeah, I mean Dorset were fantastic. They were they were a great a great um, council to work for. Um, what, one of the challenges we often have is that the proponent for the project, and, and in that case, it was Dorset Council, is not always the land manager, and that was the case at Derby. Um, so we were fortunate there that council had a good relationship with the land manager, which was the Forestry Corporation. I'm not sure what they're called now. Um, but essentially they, you know, they they were keen to sort of embrace mountain biking and, and saw it as an opportunity to, you know, sort of, I guess, generate some good publicity um, and give something back to the community. So we were fortunate in that in that sense, but it doesn't always work so well. There's other examples I can think of where, you know, local council has been the proponent for the project and saw the benefits that it would bring the local community, but, wasn't the land manager for the parcel of land where they wanted the trails to go so you know that's that's kind of almost a, a number one rule for us now you know is the land manager supportive of the project even if they're not the actual project proponent um you know are they on board with this idea because it can pretty quickly become untenable if they're not i suppose so yeah we don't just work for local councils i mean we do get engaged by you know the parks agencies around the country um you know the forest there's, there's things like state forests and forestry corporations and you know we've even done some work for a couple of private clients um but i think a, a lot of the time it is it is local councils who are seeing the benefit in these sorts of projects and are pushing to get the projects happening in the first place now jared i just wanted to go back a little bit as well and talk about the, the process in which you go through in preparing a new trail, um, as I said earlier, um, given the company's done over was it 360 kilometres of tracks, <laughs> I imagine you've got this process um, pretty well down pat now. But um, probably as part of that, I'm keen to delve into um, how the environmental impacts are taken into consideration in that preparation 
um, process. So um, I'd, I'd expect that the environmental impact would be fairly low impact. Um, but how do you take into account things like erosion and the gradient and soil, um, soil quality, all of those sorts of things? How does that all impact in your um, preparation process and design? Yeah, um, it impacts a lot, I suppose. It's, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest considerations in all of this, this work is, is making sure that we're putting trails in the right places um, and building them in the right way so that they're going to be sustainable. The, I mean, the, the, the primary goal is to try to avoid areas of really high environmental values, um, cultural heritage values too, I suppose. So we kind of go through a, a normal design process of you know kind of concept and detailed design and then construction and so there's this iterative approach to make sure that you know we're, we're gathering as much information as we can and at the start really that's the kind of desktop information you know it's looking at what information is available in the databases around flora and fauna and you know known cultural heritage values and historic values and then essentially designing a trail network that avoids those areas um, when we move into the, the next stage in the detailed design, these days it's pretty normal that we're actually doing our on-ground design with ecologists and archaeologists and so on that, you know, can essentially point to, you know, a little ground cover and say, oh, we need to avoid that because that's, you know, flora and fauna guarantee listed or EPBC listed or something like that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, this is the funny thing that, the people that ride these trails probably have no even thought or consideration for the, the amount of work and time that's spent to get it right initially, you know, and satisfy, you know, all the approvals requirements these days too. So um, number one is to avoid those areas of high values, you know, because that really, I think, makes everyone's job a little bit easier. If we can't, then we have to look at, you know, what we can do to mitigate the impacts, um, in terms of the actual, I suppose, in terms of the construction, you know, that the, there, there are some guidelines out there that have been around for a long time in terms of how to construct trails that are sustainable. A lot of it's got to do with managing the speed of riders. Um, so, you know, we kind of, we can kind of control that through the placement of obstacles and where we put them on the trail. So that sort of happens and it's not something that I do so much as that our construction guys, when once they've, they've sort of gone through and built the initial bench with the machine there's a group of guys that come behind the machine and essentially do that sort of fine tuning to really manage the rider speed but we have a bunch of different techniques that we use and the main the main difference i suppose that you know people would see if they were riding one of our trails is that they they feel really um playful they're constant up down, up, down, left, right, left, right. You know, there's no, there's no flat bits and there's no straight lines. And what that means is that any water that gets onto the trail effectively only has a small catchment and then gets pushed off at a low point. Um, you know, so it, very different to a road or a, perhaps a, a fire trail where they basically just bulldoze a straight line from A to B. You know, we take a curvy line from A to B and that's also what makes it fun. Um, yeah, and also just managing, you know, we, we have a trail difficulty rating system that kind of puts some parameters on how steep trails can be. And um, most of our trails tend to follow the contour rather than the fall line, the, you know, the, the, the shortest line down the, down the slope. We almost never route a trail straight down the slope because, you know, we end up becoming a big erosion rut in no time. 
we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Jared, it's not just bush tracks you do. I'm fascinated about the pump tracks in uh, urban areas and and uh, can you talk a little bit about pump tracks and also what that does for as a gateway to mountain bike riding? Yeah, absolutely. Pump tracks are great. They, um, so, so they're called pump tracks because the idea is that you ride them without pedaling. You pump the bike, which is sort of means you're, you're using your arms and legs to push it down into the, the dips and then sort of pull the bike up over the rollers. Um, and you watch it, you know, you watch a good rider and it, it has this really amazing kind of fluid motion that looks really cool. You know, they even generate speed in the corners just by how they push the bike into the berm. So we're, we're building them out of asphalt. I mean, they've been around for probably 10 or 20 years. Um, and in the early days, we built them out of dirt. <laughs> we, we find, you know, we could make these amazing looking pump tracks out of, out of dirt and, you know, all be nicely compacted and, look amazing but without you know having a really um diligent kind of maintenance crew within six months they kind of just start to look like piles of dirt with weeds growing all over them so we made a decision a few years back that we weren't going to do that anymore and we'd really push this idea of asphalt pump tracks um and we have a civil engineer who designs and builds all of our asphalt pump tracks and you know he kind of uses the same i guess you know, standards that, that he would use to design and build a road, you know, in terms of compaction and, you know, how the materials are laid down and all those sorts of things. So they're, um, they're, they're great looking facilities, you know, we'll, we'll put, we'll put drainage in the voids. Um, we'll, we'll landscape, we'll turf, you know, we've even put some, you know, shelters and furniture and things in as well. So they, you know, they can, they sit really well in an urban setting and they kind of work, co-located with parks or skate parks and playgrounds. Um, we've even done a couple of collaborations with another skate um, park company to sort of do work together with them. So, you know, we, we kind of look at them as the opportunity is to, to sort of take the same evolution that skate parks have taken. Um, in some ways we think they're better than skate parks because you can use them on a bike, on a skateboard, on a scooter, they're quicker and cheaper to build than skate parks, which are usually made out of concrete. Um, and I think they probably there's probably less risk in a pump track too. If you think about skate parks, you know, there's often hard, sharp edges and, and falls from height. Well, pump tracks really don't offer any of that. Um, pump Is, tracks are, are they arguably also a little bit more accessible for a broader range of people? Absolutely. I mean, you can you can have a little kid on a balance bike that will have a ball on a pump track. Um, and they're not just for kids either. I mean, adults, adults can use them and, and do use them. So we're, we're sort of, we've almost, we've got a full-time team that really just does pump tracks now. Um, and, you know, they're becoming more commonplace around the country. There's, we're not the only ones building them either. There's a couple of companies who are, you know, really, really sort of pushing this space. Um, but I don't think we've seen what they can be yet. There's, 
you know, there's so many opportunities to, you know, integrate different materials and, um, you know, different designs and, 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 you know, some, some really creative and clever landscaping that I think you could do as well. So I'd love to get a client that um, perhaps had some budget and some, uh, some risk to try something different with, with a big pump track would be really cool. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Jared, just going back to, um, you know, the standard sort of mountain bike tracks that we we're talking about before, has there been any follow-up studies um, on the impacts of those tracks and trails um, once they've been implemented in terms of environmental impacts, but also, um, I guess, the physical benefits that have come from implementation? That sort of stuff is really hard to lay your hands on. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies out of the US around, you know, the benefits of trails. Um, locally in Australia, it's it's kind of hard to find. Um, you know, you can go and Google and I'm sure you'll find something, but a lot of the information's old and it's sort of not perhaps, you know, based on what's really happening. Um, you know, I know down in, in Derby, Dorset Council and Tourism Tasmania have collected data on, you know, the benefits and, you know, I can't quote the numbers, but this, the visitation of Derby is driving significant financial benefit to that region, you know, and there's, there's 20 to 30 jobs that have been created in that town by that, that destination. Um, in terms of the environmental stuff, again, it's something I'd, I'd love to actually have good information on. Um, you know, a lot of the ecologists that we've worked with have, have, you know, become mountain bikers over the years through working with us and, and go back and look at some of these trails that they helped, you know, effectively design in, in the, uh, the detailed design stages and, are, and are, you know, like, I guess, really happy with, you know, the condition of the trails and the fact that there's not, you know, a, a um, you know, a massive abundance of weeds and things, you know. So a lot of a lot of the issues I think are perceived rather than reality. You know, I think the the environmental impacts of mountain biking primarily are in the initial stages when you build the trail. So if you can avoid putting them in those high sensitivity areas, you know, you can actually avoid a lot of the the more significant impacts full stop. Jared, I've got a it may sound a dumb question, but do you need mountains for a mountain bike uh, experience in, in the bush? Uh, you know, many, many areas aren't mountains or have very mild uh, undulating terrain. Um, is there, or, or are those trails just trails, not, not mountain bike trails? Can you help me out on this one, please? Pete wants to put a, a mountain bike track in, I think, on his property. <laughs> Well, you can have mountain bike trails anywhere, really. Perfect. Um, That's going in then. You're Thank in you. luck. <laughs> there are mountain bike trails uh, in Pachuca, no, Moama, <laughs> the New South Wales side, um, which, you know, in one of those sort of um, red gum forests along, along the Murray. You know, which which for listeners outside of Australia is a very, very flat place, right, it's Jared? very flat. There's about five metres of total elevation change across the whole site. Um, Sure, you wouldn't want to, you know, you wouldn't spend days and days exploring the trail network, but it's pretty fun. Um, and they use the elevation change that they've got in a creative way. So, yeah, you can do that. I mean, the other example is is the Olympics. Um, I don't know if you watched the cross-country mountain bike racing in the, the Olympics just recently, but 
the whole site, they probably only had 50 metres of elevation change. Um, yeah, so, so no, you don't always need big mountains. Mountains are good. Um, but you could also go to the other extreme. You could look at, for example, Whistler in Canada. You know, it's got, I don't even know, probably 2,000 vertical metres or something. But the majority of their mountain bike users are probably just using the lower chairlift and doing repeat runs, you know. Yep. So, One of the reasons I asked that question, Jared, is that um, many councils uh, or land managers um, might have areas that don't have that, you know, they think, oh, it's, it doesn't have steep terrain, so we can't put these trails in. But it, what you're saying is that they're, the opportunity, uh, you, you know, you have the site and you cut your cloth and you can make it work, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of a sweet spot for what works, you know. So we look at, at Derby again in Tasmania. Um, there's a few different products available in terms of um, being, being shuttled in a vehicle to a high point. So this is one of the things that the market's really looking for is these, you know, a lot of people don't want to ride up hills, right? So um, there's a commercial opportunity for businesses to provide shuttle rides to the top of the hills. So in Derby, there's kind of um, one of the, the signature trails is called the Blue Tier. It's about an hour's drive to get shuttled to the top. And it's almost a full day ride back down. It's absolutely stunning. So that's a, you know, it's, it's a really popular ride. And there's actually, I think, three different shuttle businesses sort of servicing that trail. But one of the sort of equally popular products is what they call the Black Stump. And it's only a 10-minute shuttle ride from town. Um, and it gives you access to six or seven different descending trails of different abilities. And it's more popular. And I think it's because you know, you can, you can mix it up. You've only got this 10 minute shuttle ride. Each trail finishes back in town. You can, if you're in a group, you know, and you don't want to do the next run, you can sit it out, go and get a coffee or whatever. So we're kind of seeing there's a bit of a sweet spot, you know, in terms of how long people want to sit in a shuttle bus. Um, I mean, ski, uh, ski resorts are different because they've got chairlifts, right? Which is, which is kind of the ultimate, but um, apart from Threadbay, that's not really being done in here in Australia. So a lot of the shuttle operators and the shuttle opportunities are, are coming from, you know, local businesses who, you know, buy a minivan and a trailer and set themselves up to provide those uplift services. And Jared, in terms of maintenance, I mean, one of the things I think that a lot of projects, um, not necessarily just mountain bike tracks, but a lot of projects generally that are done um, in collaboration with um, local or state authorities, um, one of the bugbears is always maintenance and maintenance can kill a project um, when you actually do the budgets for that. So when you design and construct the trails, do you give authorities a budget for that or how does that come about? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, the, um, the industry, you know, kind of, I, I think needs to do a bit more work on this, but you know, when we first started doing this, it was kind of like the way general, people would generally estimate a maintenance budget was just to kind of go, well, the capital cost of the project is this and the ongoing annual maintenance cost will be around five to 10% of that. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty rough, right? So, and the problem I have with that is it doesn't take into account, you know, soils, climate variability, um, not to mention the fact that a higher capital cost trial would potentially have more things like rock armoring and, surfacing that would therefore dictate that it doesn't need as much maintenance too so there's a, there's a lot of challenges in that but i guess one of the 
you know, the, the more we see this happening, the better we're getting at figuring that out. And we've now got sort of some real, I guess, some real examples where we've built trails um, and often we'd employ some local people in the construction stage, you know, to join our crew. And at the end of the project, they would basically become employed by the land manager to provide the trail maintenance services. So, you know, there's, there's actually, you know, down at, down in Derby again, for example, um, they now I think have a trail maintenance crew of two or four people. Um, and, you know, they've, they've got some pretty good numbers on, you know, what it costs to actually maintain a kilometre of trail. So we're learning. That's, that's fantastic, Joe. that the skill set being passed on to locals. So you're not just fly in, fly out, you do the job and disappear and then all the problems. Yeah. And then that, that's great. I want to, I want to just ask you, you know, I mean, you know, mountain biking allows, you know, it seems to allow many more people to get into the bush than would otherwise not have gone and where it would have been just traditionally, you know, bushwalkers. Um, are we seeing together, are we seeing the coming together of sort of low impact recreation and the desire for nature experience and enviro tourism? I mean, is that, it seems like it's all coming together with what you do. Yeah, look, I, I think that's kind of hitting the nail on the head. It, it, and I think, I think recreation's changing too, right? Um, it, it's, it's different. Um, you know, people, people want to go into natural places, but, you know, perhaps the way they want to get there is different and, and the, the experiences they want to have are now changing too. So, um, you know, and a lot, a lot of, certainly a lot of people I know, you know, they kind of plan their holidays around an activity, you know, surfing, skiing, mountain biking. So I think that's becoming more, more commonplace. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, for us, when we're designing trails, we're looking for those places that, you know, they, they give you the wow factor, they give you the, you know, the tingles up your spine. So it's, um, you know, I kind of figure if I go, if I find a place like that in the bush when I'm designing something, you know, it's a place that other people are going to want to get to as well. Um, you know, and I, I like to think too that with the mainstream kind of movement of mountain biking into the mainstream, that, that we are, I guess, getting people out of their lounge rooms and onto bikes and out into the bush to experience that too. Now, Jared, um, we sort of, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, one thing we didn't actually ask you is around what can authorities do to help assist the process of setting up new trails? Um, what can they do? <laughs> uh, get some Besides fun. just saying yes and giving you money. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. Um, look, I mean, the, the... I, I suppose also, Jared, in, in, in asking that question, what are some of the pushbacks you might get from land managers? Um, it, it, does that come into it, Jess? That sort of, I mean, is that the sort of most common problem you have? Yeah, look, you can get, I mean, you can get pushback from lots of places. So it can come from the land manager just saying, well, no, this, this is a, a national park, for example, and, and that the activity is not suitable or it's a world heritage area or something like that. Um, you know, you can get you can get pushback from environmental groups or you know, like the the local field naturalist group or something like that. Um, you can even get you can even get you know problems with other user groups who sort of perceive that they're going to be pushed out or or you know that their 
experience that they've been doing for 10 or 20 years all of a sudden is going to be you know swamped with mountain bikers so there's a lot of those a, a lot of those issues you have to you have to face you know that the the thing a lot of people perhaps don't understand is you, you know we, and we've often encountered this with walkers and horse riders who think you know all of a sudden they're going to have mountain bikes on their trails as well actually no we're not we're not going to use the existing trails because they don't provide the type of experience that the mountain bikers want you know so you've just got to work through those different issues you know we've had we've had problems where an adjacent land holder you know a resident has had concerns that you know their privacy was going to be impacted by a trail in the bush 300 meters away um you know we've we've changed the alignment and um changed it again and again <laughs> um until we found a compromise and lo and behold come back two years later and the trail's built and that landowner is now a dedicated passionate mountain biker you know so i think a lot of times it's perception rather than reality um but you know working through that with the community working through that with the land manager you know it's like it's like anything that that sort of consultation has got to be done early on we often we often joke but you know as soon as people see a line on a map whether it's a concept or a um a final design you know that that's when things become real so um making sure that you know the messaging goes out with the maps this is a concept you know you'll have your chance to have your say all those sorts of things along the way are really important um and even just making sure that you know the the land the adjacent landholders have been engaged as well you know there's examples where um even though the trails were not going to be located on private property that you know the adjacent landholders have essentially you know put in an opposition to a planning permit and managed to stop projects so it's probably not that different to other types of development in that regard well we're very familiar with these these things you outlined, Jared. So, I, I, I'm, I know that there's mountain bike trails in many places overseas, and one place that uh, I've looked at, um, Jared, is in the South Island of Japan and um, in Kyushu, and that was uh, they located a bike, a mountain bike track in a in what they call a marginal hamlet, which means that. 50% um, of the population is over the age of 65 and there's no services, essentially. Um, do, you, do you look at other places for, what are you learning from overseas? Presumably, you want to look at all the time for new ideas. Absolutely. Any, any thoughts there? Well, we actually have a team uh, over in Norway at the moment doing some work. <laughs> oh, what a great place to go to do some I know. work. I wish I would. <laughs> One of my favourite countries. Yeah, no, look, all the feedback that's coming back is, is just being, you know, the, the, the forests are incredible, the terrain's amazing, the people have been fantastic. And, and it, you know, I think we, we went there with one client, I think we now have four clients in Norway all wanting, you know, us to do design and construction work over there. So I can see that being something that will um, continue to, to work on into the future. Um, yeah, look, I guess the team is always you know, traveling and, and visiting other destinations. You know, we don't just ride the trails we build, we, we ride trails that our competitors build and, you know, we're pretty much all mountain bikers. So whenever we can travel, which is not much at the moment, <laughs> um, you know, we've all got a bucket list of places, you know, in, in Europe and New Zealand and North America and other places, you know, where we'd love to go mountain biking. Um, yeah, but but always always trying to learn from what others are doing as well. Um, I, I think, you know, the Norway example is showing us that, 
you know, we've actually got a pretty good handle on, on what makes for a good mountain biking destination, what makes for a good mountain bike trail. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the way people are following the company and coming to ride our trails suggests that, you know, we're kind of getting the, um, the recipe right. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. Now, Jared, we're coming to the end now. I just wanted to also ask um, for people thinking about getting into mountain bike riding, what would you suggest? Beyond um, getting an e-bike. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, do it. Do it, absolutely. Um, look, it's, it's a sport that's given me a lot over the years. Um, and I think it can be lots of things to different people. Um, you know, for me, it's been an opportunity for solitude. It's been an opportunity to connect with nature. Um, it's an opportunity for adrenaline. So... It really just depends what you're looking for. I mean, it's also social, you know, if you're riding with people. Um, I, I can't speak highly enough of it. You know, if you're an outdoor person, um, you know, and you're into fitness and, and so on, then then just give it a go, you know. Um, go, to, go to a professionally designed and built mountain bike destination and, and see what they've got on offer. Um, yeah, modern mountain bikes are incredible too. Like they've come a long way and they're really easy to ride and they're really fun to ride. Um, I think e-bikes as well. I think the other thing, um, not that I'm a professional mountain bike rider by any means, um, but one of the things I'd say um, in my experience, a very limited experience, I need to put that disclaimer on, is that it's actually not as scary as you think either. Like I think when, when my husband first suggested that we go mountain bike riding, I sort of had this image of, you know, all these professional riders oh, flying past me and it was going to be very very scary. Oh, that cruel husband of yours <laughs> he's probably you he can probably hear me right now <laughs> but I, it was actually a lot more relaxing than i thought and and i think as well probably because we we're on beginner courses we were really yeah. the only people there it was very very serene and like you say it was that opportunity to connect with nature um yeah. but it was just beautiful it wasn't anything like i anticipated no, look, I think that's a common um, misconception about the sport. And I kind of blame the, the 90s, you know, the, the no fear, Red Bull kind of extreme sports. Yes. Stuff, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not even mountain biking, right? That's stunt riding, um, you know. And for most people that ride a mountain bike, there's no aspiration to ever achieve that kind of level of insanity, you know. So I kind of just, I think of mountain biking as riding on dirt, you know, and that could be... Mm. Yeah, look, it's kind of changing now. There's, there's, there's a new segment in road riding, which is called gravel riding, right? So they're selling a bunch of bikes now called gravel bikes that are just road bikes with knobby tyres on them. So, you know, what's mountain biking, what's road biking? To me, it's just riding a bike in the bush, you know, on dirt, essentially, is what I think of as mountain biking. And it can be whatever you want it to be. Jared, for, for, you know, tourism associations or citizen group, you know, business development groups or councils thinking about this and uh, you know sometimes it's it's as easy as picking up the phone or clicking on the website how do they start how do they start the process well i guess the first thing they've got to do is just actually have a good look at their their backyard their own patch and and decide if it's the right fit you know we have had clients who've 
you know, seen some coverage of, of Derby or, or one of the other, you know, successful destinations and gone, that's it, we're going to be the next Derby. And they picked up the phone and called us. And really, we've kind of gone a, a short way down the design process only to figure out you really don't have, you know, the right, the right attributes. You know, you don't have enough bush or you don't have enough vertical elevation or you've got great forests, but it's all national park and, and you're not going to be allowed to do anything. So, you know, I think that is step number one, do a little bit of self-analysis to figure out whether it's a good fit and whether you have the right, you know, kind of landscape. And then really it's, it's you know, pick up the phone and, and get involved with some professionals that can help you, you know, navigate the way through the, the designs, the concept design, the detailed design, the community consultation, and then, you know, figure out how to get some funding and, and move towards actually building the things. Incredible. Now, we normally ask people, um, this is at the end of the interview, what they do to refresh and relax. But I feel like we already know the answer to this question with you. Because <laughs> clearly you go mountain bike riding. But is there anything that you do outside of mountain bike riding to refresh and relax? Yeah, I look, I mean, that's that's my go-to thing. Um, and always has been. Um, it, I do enjoy surfing. Um, and living here where I do, I get down the coast as much as possible, which hasn't been much lately. Um because we haven't been allowed to with COVID lockdowns. But um, no, I ride as much as I can. My, my family are now mountain bikers too. I've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old who are great little riders. Um, my wife rides as well. So, you know, that seems to occupy a lot of our um, free time, I suppose. And, and, and Jared, we're coming to the end, which is Podcast Extra or Culture Corner. Something you've read seen watched listened to experience lately that you thought uh you think our listeners might be interested in and gain some inspiration look I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything now i like a lot of people at the moment um i've been juggling three jobs um working for world trail being uh, a parent and also now a school teacher because my kids have been at home from school so the little bit of spare time i seem to get you know, before bed, I try to read a book and generally find myself falling asleep. Um, so now I've not really, and, and my podcast listening time was always on long drives when I was driving to a job, which I also haven't been able to do for um, 12 months or more. I don't think um, I've done much field work at all lately. So I, I'm struggling to give you anything of interest. Um, I, I think many people have, in the same boat, unfortunately, Jared. What, what about you, Jess? I know you'll have something interesting. Well, my spare time, um, if I can call it that, has been taken up with, um, you know, all things baby at the moment. So yeah. <laughs> first four months has been pretty, um, you know, a bit of a roller coaster, you could say. But um, one thing I have been doing, which um, I was inspired by a book that a girlfriend gave me, uh, which was a series of letters that mothers had written to their younger selves around, um, you know, the journey of pregnancy and labor and the first couple of months of having a new baby and all those sorts of things. So I was inspired by that. And I sort of did the same thing. Um, it was meant to be a letter to myself, which is actually now turned into probably more of a book because it's incredibly long and I'm, I'm trying to sort of detail quite a lot of that experience just so I can look back on it in future. And, um, you know, Pete, you're always talking about your camcorder and um, making film. And so I guess this is sort of my way of, um, of doing that without 
without a camcorder here. Um, so that's been a really, really nice process and just, I guess, sort of tapping into a bit of that um, creative side of my brain um, in these early months, which has been um, quite enjoyable. How about you, Pete? You've always well, Jess, it probably leads segues into what I'm, I'm going to say. I've been doing family research and um, I'm very influenced by the Japanese and they have, you know, ancestor worship. And I, I think it's, it's good to think about, you know, the people who came before you. So I've been, uh, I'm a complete bore now, Jess, but I'm, you know, searching into the family history and we went looking for um, the first jewel um, who died in Victoria and uh, we found his grave and it's up at Creswick outside of Ballarat and it was unmarked. And um, the, the cemetery trust there is fantastic in terms of their records. So you could pinpoint it exactly, but, you know, there it was, just a pile of dirt, nothing there. So very sad. He died back in 1865. Um, he'd been in Victoria 11 years. And so what, we'd, what we've organised is a plaque for him, Jess, with his details, where he was born in Cornwall and, you know, when he died and uh, his son's name and things like that and his partner's name. So I'm, 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 we're going to have the unveiling soon, uh, the reveal. <laughs> when the when the uh, the plaque is going to be revealed but i did get into trouble with um, jared some family members in that i ordered an aluminium plaque and when they found out that i'd ordered a cheap aluminium plaque did i cop it so now it's going to be bronze and um in about three or four weeks there's going to be the reveal okay well can i can i also just point out creswick is actually developing mountain bike trails too so you'll be able to go and visit your ancestors grave and go for a ride as well. This is perfect, Jess. So we, we should, uh, look, that's, that's wonderful. It's a beautiful part of the world if any, anyone doesn't know it. Um, but I, I just think um, for people to research their family history is super interesting and also to consider the times that they lived in because, you know, Jared, Jess, they were, you know, times were really tough, you know, very grim, not that long ago. We, we live in uh, times of plenty, amazing. But that's all I've got to say, Jess, on that. You've always got something interesting on the go, Pete. I always look forward to your podcast extra. Oh, I always look forward to doing a podcast with you, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, you've been a wonderful, wonderful guest. Um, I've learned so much. Um, and thanks for informing us. And I hope listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. Thank, thanks so much, Jared. Thanks, Jess. I can't Bye. wait to go mountain biking. Me too. And thanks for having me, guys. Not a problem. Not a problem.